my goal is to treat their underlying disorder, but not make them suffer as a result of it. So I, right. I approach this the same way. You know, if we can treat someone in a humane way where they feel comfortable during the process, it allows them to understand that there's a way out of this without having to go through a grueling process. It, it makes them much more apt to focus on long-term sobriety. This is the Dr. Junkie Show, and I am your host, Ben Boyce, a man who's gone through quite a few in-home detoxes myself. That's the topic of today's episode, in-home detox. What is it? How does it work? And why isn't it widely available everywhere already? I sat down with Dr. Abe Melkin, who specializes in addiction treatment services from controlled detox to medication-assisted therapy to anti-aging treatments, which, believe it or not, are incredibly beneficial during a recovery from a state of dependency to a drug. We'll get into all that shortly. First, as you might imagine, I get quite a bit of email about this show. Some of it's positive, like, good job, thanks for saying this stuff. It's so good to know people like us do just fine when given opportunity and support. It isn't hard to guess that much of it's negative, Although lately, more of those emails have focused not so much on my liberal ideas about loving drug users, but on my willingness to discuss things like race, class, gender, and all sorts of other identity markers which inevitably shape our journeys throughout our life, but that are often scary to discuss as a straight white dude. People hate this for some reason. But the email comment I get the most, if you've been listening for very long, this will make perfect sense, it goes something like, Hey man, I thought you were pro-drug. Why did you make such and such drug sound like people shouldn't try it? And when I respond, which I usually do, sometimes to my regret, I explain the good news for every parent who's dreading talking to their kids about drugs. That good news is that there are plenty of reasons to think twice before using most drugs. When it comes to having that talk with our kids, the easy solution for forever has been to just tell them that drugs are bad and that anyone using them is dangerous. And with this response, we've managed to shield parents from the knowledge of their children's desires, their children's drug use. We've avoided a conversation which might make the parents feel uncomfortable. But the shielding of the parents, it's come at a high cost to the kids, who still use drugs as often as ever, but they know damn well not to talk to their parents about it. The truth about drugs is indeed often discouraging to people who wish there was nothing but good news. There's a lot more than bad news, but all of it is not good. Drugs and other behaviors can indeed prove addictive. That's why it's so important to talk about this stuff. There are indeed health consequences to using certain drugs, or to using drugs a certain way. Although the legal drugs tend to do the most biological damage, somewhat appropriately, I guess, given our cultural identity. Nicotine is the most addictive drug on the market, illegal or otherwise. And according to the CDC, who is always a dangerous place to go for statistics about drugs, but since people believe them anyway, we base our behavior on what they tell us. Tobacco kills one out of every five people who die in an average day, and it lowers the quality of life of many more who aren't killed. That's why it terrifies parents to think that their kids might be using it. But preventing those kids from telling us the truth is not a good way to combat it. You don't have to encourage your kids to use heroin or to try cocaine. You can actually encourage them not to do these things, and you can back up your suggestions with science. With nicotine and most drugs, 
The truth is usually enough to help young people, and all people, either avoid them outright, or at least use them in much more responsible ways. If I'd known just some basic facts, like the truth about all opioids behaving somewhat similarly in the body, for example, I would have altered my behavior to get what I wanted with the least amount of risk possible. That's what harm reduction is. We want people to be alive and well long enough to decide that they want to reduce or halt their drug use. Dead drug users do not recover. Which leads us to today's show. Detox is the reason that many of us don't begin the process of recovery that we ultimately hope to tackle. And that's a fucked up thing, because no one ever needs to detox. Ever. It's not necessary, and going through an uncomfortable withdrawal from drugs does not in any way increase our chances of staying sober once it's over. In many studies, it greatly increases our risk of relapse, especially when we go through it in jail. But it happens to all of us, mostly because drugs are illegal and both hard to find and hard to fund. So if you're considering a sober chapter of your life, but you're worried about the inevitable weeks of feeling like shit, consider the routes that don't require that sort of agony. I used methadone, medication-assisted treatment, to basically stabilize myself and then slowly wean myself off at a controlled rate over the course of years. Sometimes I would go down just a single milligram in a week's time. Sometimes I ended up going back up. But the lack of being dope sick, it allowed me to build my life up in the meantime, and by the time my doses were minuscule, I had new tools to help me navigate my issues. Getting stabilized in a medication-assisted treatment program is like finding a tool that allows you to do your entire day's work in just 10 minutes, first thing in the morning. Where we users used to spend the entire day hunting down some cash, finding a fix, hiding somewhere to use it, avoiding detection, and then starting the whole process over again, now we have the entire day to do whatever we want. It's a pretty liberating experience. If you want to stop using drugs, consider a medication-assisted treatment program, like methadone or suboxone. I know that these programs can run more than 100 bucks a week for outpatient methadone, and quite a bit more than that for other options, like inpatient treatment or shooting dope all week. Of course, that price tag can get in the way of those of us without insurance. But there are options out there for those who want to make that change, whether that's finding a sponsor for a methadone program or using your insurance to get into a facility. You can usually start by dialing 211 no matter where you are in North America, and you should be connected to a central hub where someone can walk you through the services offered by your community. Which takes us right to in-home detox. Dr. Abe Melkin runs Elite Home Detox, a medical service to help people either stop using drugs or to switch to safer alternatives like methadone or suboxone. Dr. Melkin and I discuss a lot in this relatively short interview including the basics of in-home detox, after-detox care and support, alternatives to sobriety, anti-aging treatments, hormones and how addiction affects them, telemedicine and addiction treatment in the 21st century, the pros and cons of 12-step programs, the differences between treatment for opioids and treatment for, say, alcohol or benzodiazepines. We get into the disease model versus the learning disorder model of addiction and how they're actually close but not exactly the same. We talk anti-craving medication, Las Vegas hangover infusions, also known as vitamin drips, NAD treatment, what we lose as we age, ketamine infusion therapy, psychedelic medicine, MDMA treatment, and more. 
So without further ado, I want to welcome Dr. Abe Melkin. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to sit down. I'm looking forward to this. I feel like I probably knew something like this has existed for, <laughs> yeah. for as long as medicine has, but hadn't really put it in a contemporary context. This cultural update, this post-COVID where people are realizing, well, yeah, we want to go back, but come on, we don't want to go all the way back. There was some pretty convenient stuff that popped in. Right, right. So that's sort of your niche. You are the founder of Elite Home Detox. Is that right? Which is a... I would just introduce it as an in-home addiction treatment service. Mostly what we do is in-home detox. And then the rest of it is sort of ancillary services that layer onto you know patient care after detox. Well, why don't we start with you? And before we get into like all the specifics, I was thinking like, what gets somebody into this line of work, considering you got oncology, you got no limit to the various fields that you could have gone into still in medicine. Why addiction treatment? So I I started off doing regular concierge medicine, family medicine in 2016 in Los Angeles. And it just so happened to be that a lot of the patients that I worked with in that field, high net worth individuals suffered from addiction issues. They just didn't have anyone telling them no during their lives. And one thing led to another and they developed addictive behaviors. So it was sort of something that grew out of my natural concierge practice. And I ended up getting board certified in addiction medicine three years after in 2019. And now has this has become the focal point of my practice. I also still do general primary care medicine and some anti-aging medicine, but addiction medicine is certainly a big focus of mine. Something else I noticed is it looks like you're branching out slowly, but surely to other states. You're only in a few right now. Is that right? Our goal is to essentially offer these services in every state in the U.S. I'm licensed in 45 states. So slowly but surely, we will be able to offer this everywhere. And you know, I think in some of the more rural states in the U.S. where there's not a variety of treatment options, I think this will be a really important offering for patients to get care wherever they are. A few of the earlier interviews I watched some footage of with you, you had sort of hit on, we're already getting there to this new era of the conflation of digital world with the real world in very convenient ways that we're probably never going to go back on. And telemedicine is one of those. So do you do a lot of this via telemedicine? Yeah, certainly. One of the reasons we were able to expand a lot during the pandemic is because some of the rules around prescription, prescribing over telemedicine have been relaxed. I think hopefully that's there, that's here to stay because that will enable us to provide services to patients in more remote areas. Uh, obviously, we do have an in-home component where we have a 24-hour nurse with you the entire time during your detox. So that is done on-site in person, but some of the medical oversight piece is done via telemedicine. And it enables us to manage several detoxes at once in different regions throughout the country. As we turn into the what the service actually is, do you do just detox or do you follow through and do Suboxone seems to have come out with much less of a stigma than like regular care providers. I know there's a limit, but do you guys do anything outside of a detox? We do. We have aftercare services, which include medical, uh, mental health, case management, just sober companionship. A lot of our patients uh, who go through the detox process, enjoy the experience of having someone really cater to them in a concierge sort of way. And they, uh, you know, they look for those aftercare services on their schedule that fit seamlessly into their life. We, we certainly recommend AA to a lot of patients, but that can be more of an all-consuming activity versus what we offer is sort of more seamless integration into your daily life. As we rethink what addiction is and how we're going to deal with it, We haven't quite realized that we've already started this massive experiment on the West Coast where you're at with decriminalization and the wheels haven't fallen off. Overdoses have gone up across the country, unfortunately, which skews the numbers, but no higher over on the West Coast. 
I think this is probably part of that rethinking where we go from, you've got to go to the methadone clinic every morning and stand in line if you're one of those bad people to, oh, people do so much better when they stop in once a month, get their prescription, as long as it's drugs that have these long halves life. So there's a lot that we are worried about when we're addicted to something, especially like heroin or alcohol, where you're in the midst of like, you can't just stop drinking tomorrow because you've developed a tolerance and you're going to go through terrible detox. The detox isn't our only fear, but it is the most prominent fear that we have day after day after day, because we know what's coming. Right. And it annoys me that it's really hundred percent avoidable. It's like the real tragedy of where we're at with this overdose crisis, mm -hmm. as we're calling it. If we had more services that made it easier, if you could just say, look, I'm at the verge of going out to the street and getting some heroin, what can you do? And you're on a, a telehealth or there's somebody in your area. So I'm yeah. getting a little bit ahead of us here, but how does what happens if I call you and I say, Hey, I'm, uh, I'm struggling to stop using heroin. I'm on like my second or third year and I've tried all this stuff and I've just had enough. I want to stop using heroin, but I know I can't. What happens? We would within 24 hours, get a nurse over to your house. We would first do an assessment via probably via telemedicine to ensure that, you know, we're you're appropriate for this type of care, get a nurse over, get meds ordered. And, you know, typically we can have a detox started within 24 hours if the patient's ready for it. And what that looks like is daily check-ins with our medical provider to ensure safety and comfort, 24-hour nursing coverage with a nurse that has experience dealing with patients with addiction. Because you know during a detox, it's important to know what is true withdrawal symptoms versus med-seeking behavior and really to understand how to navigate that effectively to provide a safe but effective detox medication plan. And there's a few specifics <clears throat> that come to mind because clearly... There's many categories of addiction and the substances have a lot to do with how you go through detox, how long it lasts. But with opiates specifically, what does the medication regimen look like? Are you cold turkey on all opioids or do we do you try to switch to Suboxone if it's going to be a, a yeah. long-term thing? We, we offer that as, a, as, a, as an option for patients, Suboxone. Some of our patients prefer not to use it and they rather use more um, you know, comfort-focused medications like phenobarbital or benzodiazepines during detox. A lot of patients prefer to start without Suboxone and if needed, add it for a short period of time during detox. You know, for patients that have had significant history of relapse, we do offer medication-assisted treatment long-term with Suboxone, but certainly our goal is really to get someone off of the substance without having to replace it with another one. Uh, so it's, it's more of a last resort for us, but it's definitely available. I don't know how much of my story was shared. I should have started there just to make sure, but I'm an addicted person that mm -hmm. went through just a big... Well, most of our addictions are based to some degree on trauma, as you know. So trauma that I didn't even realize was trauma built up to the point where I spent a year and a half in prison. In prison, and I'm sure you know this too, dealing with addicted people, it does number on us. We get out and right, we're, we're way worse. I'm part of the group that you just hit on a minute ago that the 12-step models that we've sold, sort of been sold culture-wide is basically the only solution. Even the, the alternatives, when you look closer, often based on the same sort of model and they change something up. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of us that just don't align with that. When you get people on a stabilizing medication, even if it's Suboxone and what's wild in, in England at times, it's actually been daily doses of heroin. It sucks because the half-life is so short. You mm -hmm. basically got people all day. Whereas again, you know, this with Suboxone and methadone, it's stretched out. But some of us just decide at a certain point in our life, with our frontal cortex fully intact, knowing what the consequences are, so to speak, that we want to be opiated. And the trick is that I always say, like, don't tell the people using heroin right now, 
the point is we're going to make them want to stop. The mm-hmm. old, whole idea of addiction is not to force you to stop, to get you to a spot still alive where you just decide, I want to stop. It's funny when you get the person on, on the team, right? Yeah. how much easier it goes. So I'm one of this group that still, I use Kratom actually. I'd switched out. I was on methadone for a while. I've sort of preferred it because it's this natural thing. So the reason I'd ask specifically about opioids is that this detox fear sometimes comes cloaked in like, well, if I go to any form of treatment, the first thing they're going to do is say, suck it up and be sick as a dog for a month. That's just terrifying to people that are consistently using because of that. So you're saying that's not what you do. The idea is to counsel people, but also to have, if need be, some chemical remedies to get you through the worst of it, and then decide probably once you start to clear up a little bit what you want to do. I mean, I think addiction is a disease. It's not a a choice for a lot of people. You know, it's as if someone came to your office and said, uh, I have diabetes or high blood pressure, hypertension. My goal is to treat their underlying disorder, but not make them suffer as a result of it. So I I approach this the same way. You know, if we can treat someone in a humane way where they feel comfortable during the process, it allows them to understand that there's a way out of this without having to go through a grueling process. It it makes them much more apt to focus on long-term sobriety. You mentioned the disease model. I was having a discussion with actually someone in my family. It's the irony of learning about things people in your family aren't familiar with is sometimes they're the ones you can't convince because they knew you before. This uh, way of thinking about addiction is a learning disorder. Are you familiar with it? And how do you feel about it? I haven't heard that model before, but I think addiction is similar to other disorders in that it's, you know, your brain circuitry has been rewired and it's not essentially a conscious decision to make those behaviors, but it's innate in you at this point and needs to be reformed. So first is the chemical dependency. And then beyond that is the behavioral dependency. The learning disorder model, basically, he pointed this out. Well, it's still very much like the disease model, except it does away with the stigma that we attach to diseases that people feel like you caught yourself. And it allows people to not say, you're just out of control. Because there's this weird choice that when we get into those 12-step programs, they try to completely take it away and say, you get up in the morning and you are sick as a dog and know if you take a substance, you'll suddenly feel better, both mentally and physically. And then you, you make an illogical choice to take the substance. Well, no, <laughs> it's still a logical choice in the moment, but there's some sort of disorder and thinking going on that's realized this is not working as good as it did before. If this was a route to work and there was a pothole and I couldn't get around, I would learn the first time I got to go a different way tomorrow. And since it's the only way I know that's going to work, I keep going back to the thing that my tolerance builds on and I'm not getting the same effects anymore, gambling, sex, drugs, and I keep going back. I think the only, the biggest difference is that it gives people a way to remove the the stigma that still remains on the disease model. I don't think we would lock people in prison if we really across culture thought it was a disease. There's some missing piece to that puzzle, but yeah, I I think you're right. It's still the same model. Definitely. Yeah. Before we move on, the other big one would be alcohol and benzos might be somewhat the same, but you probably get a lot of calls given our cultural norm of alcohol for alcohol. If I call you and say, I am ready to stop using alcohol and I've been drinking it's different for all people, but enough that I don't detox every day and go back. But I, I don't think I can ever let my alcohol level fall below. What sort of medication is the, is it the same sort of thing? Yeah. So we would use primarily benzodiazepine and detox. Sometimes we use phenobarbital for patients that are really, really heavy users of alcohol, especially if they have a history of seizure or complicated withdrawals in the past. 
We also use standard comfort meds, gabapentin, clonidine, zofran, trazodone. So we try to eliminate a lot of the negative effects of withdrawal to make it, again, a more comfortable experience. I know this isn't like an all, one size fits all, but I have a few <laughs> friends that have struggled with alcohol in the past and heavy, heavy drinkers, and then decided have done it repeatedly to just detox by themselves. Is that something that I'm right to say? Don't detox with alcohol. It's dangerous. You should get some medical treatment. Yeah. I mean, of all substances, alcohol and benzos are the two that are most dangerous to detox on your own. You know, you can stop opiates cold turkey and it might suck and you feel terrible, but ultimately it's not going to be dangerous for you. Whereas with alcohol or benzos, there are negative effects like seizures or other DTs that can happen, which can be life-threatening. So as much as I support people going sober, it has to be done in a, in a safe way. We're back to that stigma piece. I presume <clears throat> that that's the only reason, of course, if you got you know monetary issues, but I think a lot of it in the people that I know that have gone through is the stigma of saying, I just want it to be over. And Right. This cultural line of just, well, then tough it out and you earned this. It's your right. fault, right? And so, yeah, I always, that's just one I always wanted to put out there is like, you can have a lot of issues if you're trying to do this alone. And yeah, it's great that we've got people now that are a little more accessible. So I also wanted to ask you about long-term medication assisted treatment. And we talked briefly about it, but anything you want to add to that? It sounds like you're, if it's something people want or proponent of it. Yeah. I mean, for alcohol or opiates, we do offer naltrexone or Vivitrol. You know, naltrexone helpful for people who are pretty responsible about taking a medication every day. Vivitrol for people that don't think they have it with them to remember to take a medication every day, but want to have some long-term anti-craving support. We offer Sublocade, which is sort of an alternative to Suboxone. It's an injectable Suboxone essentially that lasts for a month. These are just a variety of different anti-craving medications for people. Yeah. And then, you know, when we uncover underlying mental health issues that are driving patients' addiction, we don't prescribe antidepressants or benzos ourselves. But if, if their need arises, we do have psychiatric support for patients who need to underlying mental health treatment. Yeah, that's great. This is something else I've noticed in your style is I don't think I've seen you use the word holism, but you have sort of this holism perspective where it might be strange for some people to think about, but we have what are now called aging treatments, right? Which are basically like, you know, giving your body a boost that as we get older, it's harder to get, but to put that in conversation with detox, can you say a little bit about that? How do you yeah, guys do you're bringing up a, a really important point here, which is when someone goes through detox, a lot of times they feel depleted at the end of it and they just don't feel right. And oftentimes that ultimately leads them to, to relapse. So part of our approach as being a concierge approach is post-detox really try to heal the person's underlying issues. And whether that be doing lab work and uncovering vitamin deficiencies, or if someone has turned to opiates because of underlying pain issues, we have alternative methods to treat that. For example, we have patients who ultimately do stem cell infusions or peptide therapy to heal tissue damage that has been causing them pain and leading to relapse. So to your point about a whole approach, we, we really try as a concierge service to not only provide the detox, but help build a patient up after detox so that they feel right and don't feel the need to relapse in order to search for that high. Yeah. Vegas is this place that I like, I really have a spot in my heart for it as an addicted person. Cause it's like a sublimation of take a weekend and go just lose it. But I describe it as like a place where you're not going to find anything there that you couldn't find in your home city. The difference is it's sort of flaunted and make to look like it's everywhere. So people don't say no at 8am when somebody says you want a, a double shot. Whereas <laughs> at home, you're probably going to be like, 
Yeah. Oh, no one else around here is drinking. Right. And that affect is there. But one of the things I walk by a lot in Vegas are what they call detox bars or recovery bars where they do something similar. They give you like an injection. These are probably similar, but related. Is there something along those same lines though, that you've talked Uh, about called the drip? Yeah. So, I mean, we, we also offer IV therapy, certainly for patients to help replete them in a number of ways, you know, vitamin drips are really helpful to replete, you know, B vitamins, vitamin C, glutathione, which is a strong antioxidant, but also we offer NAD infusions, which are really helpful for repairing uh, brain function. So, you know, that brain fog that people tend to have after using substances is really debilitating. NAD is helpful for cognitive focus, memory, sharpness of mind. It's a naturally occurring element that declines after the age of around 35. So whether you have substance use issues or not, it's something that affects you as you age. But certainly with people that have substance use issues, it really declines faster. And that's what leads to a lot of the more mental health focused aspects of addiction. So NAD infusions are really helpful for repleting that and giving someone a boost and helping them feel like they did before, you know, their substance abuse. Yeah, this whole connection of mind and body, it's like the more we dive into new areas of addiction research, we realize like, well, that was something people realized at the very beginning, I'm sure to some degree, but it's really there that if you're waking up day after day and realizing this thing works and you don't realize that you're starting feeling like crap because it's your baseline, you always feel like Mm -hmm. that. It totally makes sense. Those things do work too. The alternative to that is that you go out and you're either taking, I mean, I guess there's probably people that take too much acetaminophen the day after drinking too much or something, but a lot of people go out and get drugs. I mean, there's like illegal drugs you can use. You could probably smoke some weed and get the same sort of effect and to like have this alternative that's like, or you could just take the vitamins that are missing from your body and you'd probably feel better and could do whatever you want. It's an interesting way to think, but NADs are the gold standards, the wrong word, but is that the norm in what we call aging therapy nowadays? The NAD is probably the most popular and effective anti-aging solution that's broadly used in most circles. The reason being is that there's absolutely no negative side effects of it. It can be taken orally via injection, via IV. It across the board acts as a blank check essentially for your body to help repair functions in your body. So there's really no dispute about it. There's a complete consensus that it's helpful. There's other things that are more specific to certain ailments like stem cells, like peptides, but NAD is really helpful for anyone. Yeah. You mentioned earlier too, you try to avoid, or maybe don't use it all. I'm assuming you mean SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And whenever I talk about any drug, even the ones I hate, I say like, if you've got something that works for you, I'm not the person to tell you don't use it. Do Mm -hmm. what makes your life successful. But I've heard a lot of this conversation lately that we're rethinking these things that in like true American fashion, they never really worked that well all along, but they were the best we got as often happens. What is it that made you start moving away from them? And again, to your point, I think it's really important to individualize this. So people that have a good response to it, I think, you know, there's certainly a place for it. However, I have seen patients that become dependent on those medications. And there are other ways of treating mental health disorders that can be very effective and don't lead to long-term use. One thing that we are now trialing is ketamine infusions, which can can achieve the same effect as long-term SSRI use within a month or two. Because what happens with a lot of patients is they have trauma from childhood or other parts of their lives. And breaking that negative thought pattern is really important for helping them overcome that trauma. Long-term SSRI use is one method, 
But ketamine treatment can be helpful in very rapidly breaking that negative thought pattern in a method that doesn't lead to long-term use. Do you offer that at the clinic? Clearly we not on telehealth. In, we haven't figured out how to plug people in over the yeah. We, we, no, we have a we have a national network of nursing that we let, tap into to offer in-home services. So IV therapy across the country for patients in, in most states in the U.S. is available. What do you make of that? To give you a baseline of where I'm at, because I'm not an MD, so that question could mean a lot of things. I've talked a lot about uh, MDMA therapy with Ben Sessa over in England, who's run a lot of these trials. And the goal is to basically shut down your amygdala and your fear center. So the trauma that usually makes you freak out and run out of the room doesn't fire the freak out and run circuits. And you could talk. This is not ketamine, right? What do you make of ketamine therapy? Yeah, ketamine is a dissociative. So what it does is it helps you break some of those recurring cycles of negative thought that really it's, it's very difficult to get out of. When you take ketamine, you almost have this like objective view of yourself as opposed to being in your head you now can take a step back and almost objectively look at your problems as if you were someone else. And it's a really powerful experience of saying, wow, I can think about what, what's going on in my head objectively without all the negative emotions that are attached to the issue. And even after one treatment, patients have this profound epiphany of, of, a, of a new way of thinking about some of their, their problems. Yeah, it's weird. And it's, as we've, I've said a couple of times, I think we're sort of moving medicine-wise into new areas that are probably best described as holism, like considering things that before were taboo. But this is the first I've heard of, of medical services that do therapeutic services saying, while you are on the drug, we don't talk to you. You take it and you sit there and you do this, your own world thing, because if you tried to talk to somebody, it's not going to be very easy to get through to them. They're in a sedated state for a short amount of time. And from what I understand, I, there's only two that I have friends that have done here in Denver. This might be different state to state. But after that, on the way home, there's like a debrief. And a couple of days later, there's a debrief. But oddly, unlike normal traditional therapy, where it's a therapist chipping away steadily, trying to get to this thing you buried for your whole life, you do the work yourself. And kind of like we said with addiction, second you get somebody on board for their own mental health, it's way easier than when you're fighting with them every step of the way. So yeah, I wonder where ketamine will go if we're going to move towards other drugs that have been sort of taboo like that in the past. Yeah. I mean, I think the whole area of psychedelic medicine is about to have an explosion. I mean, there's already companies offering at-home ketamine therapy in a very safe and effective way. I work with companies that are now trialing ketamine and psilocybin, ketamine and MDMA and different therapeutic approaches. I think that field is only going to continue to blossom over the next few years. Yeah. And it's odd that the ones we've been sometimes the most scared of are the ones that turn out to not cause physical dependency in traditional ways. You aren't going to get addicted to taking LSD yeah. or shrooms. I mean, certainly there's been a stigma attached to these and, and, and in some cases, rightfully so. But in, in the majority of cases, I think it's more just a matter of perspective and understanding the benefits of, the, of these substances without attaching that stigma. Yeah. And, and still on the holism train of thought, you had mentioned previously in some interview, I saw that it's not just basic like electrolyte levels that fall when you're using, say, a drug like heroin. There's a lot of other chemicals that depending on your gender, depending on your age, there's some specific treatments. You know, specifically for opiates, it causes a massive reduction in your testosterone, which for men can make you feel very depleted. And I think identifying some of those deficiencies for patients post-detox is really helpful to enable them to get back to feeling like they used to feel. 
because the biggest indicator and, and prognostic indicator of, of relapse is people just feeling hopeless. So yeah. if you can help someone feel their youth and vitality again, that's probably more important than anything else in, in maintaining sobriety. That's one example. I think other things which are I see very broadly is just people that are not living a healthy lifestyle tend to have <laughs> a lot of vitamin deficiencies. So giving them some, you know, repleting those are, are, are really helpful. We do a lot of specialty testing for patients to understand as a whole across the board what their blood level deficiencies are and, and repleting those is very important. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I think once a year, except this year, my doctor during my physical said, oh, I don't think we need to take blood. And I probably <laughs> should have just said, take it anyway. But I think as far as they go is they take blood sometimes once a year and run a basic panel on it, which I thought was given my history as a kid with medicine, where you don't go to the doctor until you lose at least three teeth or your mm -hmm. arms broke, broke and bleeding, right? This is like not that good of a physical according to a lot of standards. So what are the, some, some of the other things that if we can have tested, we might have our doctors checking out for us? Yeah. I mean, beyond the, the typical blood panel that you might get at your doctor's office, which includes electrolytes and blood counts and whatnot, you know, I think vitamin D levels are really important because low vitamin D, which is very prevalent, causes fatigue and low energy. I check a lot of gut microbiome for patients to understand if they're processing food properly and getting all the nutrients out of their food. Food sensitivities are really important to help patients identify triggers that make them feel inflamed and cause them to feel discomfort. I think ultimately, you know, the gut brain axis is very important and overlooked a lot of times in medicine. And what we put in our body really affects how we feel and better understanding the relationship between those two is really important. So you might not get that type of analysis when you go to your regular doctor, but that's something that we offer. Yeah. It's like really easy to make the connection to not realizing that something you eat on a regular basis, white flour or something, or dairy that you might consume every day makes you get inflamed in some way that then feels like pain. So you're taking heavy doses of something that becomes a lot easier to stop taking the substances when whatever additional pain is there. Yeah. Inflammation is really the key. Inflammation just causes a, a cascade of problems in patients. So if food is causing you mild inflammation in your gut, it makes you feel fatigued. It gives you that brain fog. It just makes you feel not yourself. So identifying causes of inflammation are really important for patients. But I like those French fries. Yeah, that's yeah. what I was going to say earlier. In the, in the United States, you're saying we have a problem with diet. Are you kidding me? You can get a cheeseburger for a buck fifty and a carrot too. So yeah. it's yeah, pretty I'm obvious. I'm the first one to say that. <laughs> yeah, but it's so good, right? That's, right? that's, I guess, our country's theme is they'll sell us what you want. You just got to right. tell them what you want. As we age, is there a few things that we might think about? Like if we're talking about vitamin supplements, or I've talked before about how naturally this makes sense to most listeners. You change your drug consumption from when you were a kid, you probably drink way more coffee without it making you feel all sketchy and probably drink way less alcohol is just two examples that it's not because you're forcing yourself to, you naturally age and you respond to those things different. Are there other things we should be adjusting, thinking about as we age? Yeah, I think just naturally, we talked about NAD before, something that declines as you age. Certainly, that's something that's important. Detoxifying your, your blood through using antioxidants is really important. Glutathione is a really helpful one, which essentially get rid of free radicals that are produced by toxin intake. Glutathione you know, can be taken orally or via injection. Other things that can be helpful for patients are peptides. Peptides are proteins that essentially trigger different functions in your body. So for example, men, their growth hormone levels decline after the age of 40, you know, and every year you lose 1% 1, 1 of your muscle mass, essentially. So peptides can be helpful for 
allowing your body to replace proteins that naturally decline in a safe way that works within your endocrine system, as opposed to taking a, a growth hormone supplement or taking steroids. This is actually a way to do it naturally, which can be really helpful for a lot of people. So I think those are a few things that I recommend for a lot of patients. Have you run into anybody that has criminalized might be the wrong word, but tried to like stigmatize or seen what you're doing is somehow, I think we're moving beyond this era a little bit, but still there's people out there that see in-home detox as somehow the devil's work. Do you run into that still? I think, I don't think so. I think people really find this to be a very effective approach to treatment which isn't for everyone. It's obviously a little more costly and unfortunately not accessible for everyone, but for those that are able to utilize it, extremely effective. The one major thing that, that's important here is, you know, we really try not to be a, just a detox service because we don't want people to think that detox begins and ends and, and you're done, but there's really aftercare services which help you maintain sobriety. And I think getting people into long-term treatment, whether it be with therapy or case management or whatnot, post-detox is really important. Yeah, I couldn't agree more on that. Whatever therapy looks like for a person, the sky's the limit. As long as you're in what you see as recovery, do you. But that, I've never seen it end with detox. It seems like you really don't get started until you get to a stabilized point. That doesn't mean total detox. It means you're not, if you're using a certain drug that has you nodding out for three hours a day, it means you're moved beyond the point where you're at least functioning. And then Exactly as you said, chip away at whatever it is that's got you doing things that are making your life quality decline or not be right. what it could be. Any final thoughts? Anything we missed? I, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to share our story, how we approach addiction. This is not a one size fits all. I think you know every person has to be individualized, but we're just one modality out there that I think can be helpful for a lot of people. Yeah, I really appreciate it. And as we move through whatever it looks like to fix this epidemic that's going through the roof. And then we come back from COVID and notice that people start to deal with anxiety in the ways we do. I think these options are going to be more and more important. And there's something to just being able to have somebody at the other end of the line, as opposed to set up an appointment, drive to it, that once you get the ball rolling, sometimes people stay tuned in. So we yeah. appreciate it. Keep up the good work. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Bye-bye. That was Dr. Abe Melkin. And again, his clinic is called Elite Home Detox. You can find it online. The United States is a big place, and many of you listening are in other countries where Dr. Melkin can't provide medical care. So do your homework and consider this very powerful tool for recovery. And providers like Dr. Melkin are just one of many things that I hope to see grow in coming years. Love yourselves and the addicted people in your life. I'm Ben Boyce. <laughs>